Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to uh, the Banner Lecture Series at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I'm your host, Adam Scherer, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions. Uh, we're so glad to, to have you all join us today uh, for a virtual version of the program. We thought we were, we were through this, but uh, uh, there have been some mitigating circumstances uh, which, uh, which we'll work through uh, and hope to see you all in person at the BMHC uh, for our next Banner Lecture in January. Uh, as always, uh, thank you so much for your support. Uh, we could not do this program and all of our other public programs without our, our members, and so we greatly appreciate your, your support. Uh, before we start today's program, I uh, just want to run through quickly some upcoming programs that I hope you'll mark your, your calendars for. On uh, Monday, December 13th at 10 a.m., uh, we'll have the next installment of our Curator Conversations uh, program. This is a members-only program. Uh, that will be a virtual program. Uh, the title of the program is New to the Collection. Uh, where we'll join VMHC curators as they share the remarkable stories behind their favorite objects that have been added to the collections in 2021. That evening at 7 p.m., uh, we'll feature another virtual program, History in Our Homes. Uh, this is a, a new special program. Uh, it is free, uh, but registration is required. Uh, this is a program that will help participants identify the history and important stories that can often be found in their attics, basements, and trunks. Panelists will discuss how to preserve and care for these treasures, as well as the process that museums use to collect objects and family papers. This program is a collaboration between the local chapters of the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, the Black History Museum and Cultural Center of Virginia, and the VMHC. On December 14th at 7 p.m., uh, we will continue our movie myth-busting program, uh, which is also a virtual program. Uh, the featured film will be A Christmas Story. Uh, we will have special guests from the Science Museum of Virginia uh, that will discuss STEM-related scenes like the infamous triple dog dare. And for those of you who are familiar with the story, uh, you'll know what that means. Our next banner lecture, which again, I hope we'll all see each other in person for, is on January 13th at noon. Uh, Mary DeCredico will be here talking about her book, Confederate Citadel, Richmond and its people at war. But today we're very pleased to have with us uh, from across the pond, uh, Bruce Ragsdale. Uh, Bruce is going to be talking about his book, Washington at the Plow, The Founding Farmer and the Question of Slavery. For more than 40 years, George Washington was dedicated to an innovative and experimental course of farming at Mount Vernon, where he sought to demonstrate the benefits of recent advances in British agriculture. Those methods also shaped Washington's management of enslaved labor, and he was at the forefront of efforts to adapt slavery to new kinds of farming. His inability to reconcile the ideals of enlightened farming with coerced labor 
was critical to his decision to free the enslaved people under his control. Washington at the Plow enhances the more familiar biography of our first president and offers a new perspective on the founder's response to abolitionist appeals. Bruce served for 20 years as the director of the Federal Judicial History Office at the Federal Judicial Center. He's been a fellow at the Washington Library at Mount Vernon and the International Center for Jefferson Studies. And we're very pleased to have Bruce with us today. Bruce? Thank you, Adam. Um, and I'm delighted to be here, even if virtually uh, the Virginia Museum of History and Culture has played an enormously important role in my whole life as a scholar, dating back many years since I was in graduate school. Always one of my favorite places to do research, and I'm um, delighted that I could present this um, uh, book talk to uh, an audience through the museum today. Um, Washington's life as a farmer is, is the most important untold story of, of what is probably the most familiar of um, the founders. And I, I started the project um, with the conviction that no one can fully understand Washington without some sense of why he so preferred his life um, as a farmer and what he hoped to achieve as a farmer and, and contribute um, to the establishment of, of the new nation. A, a, a British visitor to Mount Vernon in 1785 um, reported that Washington's greatest pride following the Revolutionary War was to be, con to be considered the first farmer of America. Um, Washington has been celebrated for many firsts, but first farmer of America is one title that's been lost to the nation's memory of him. And, and one of the things I wanted to do is, is to find out why that accolade would have been so important to him, especially in, in the years just immediately following his um, victory in the, in the Revolutionary War that had secured American independence. But that now, then he turns his attentions almost entirely to farming um, at, at Mount Vernon. I also wanted to uncover a, a side of the private side of Washington that's seldom evident in his life as a military leader or as president. Um, he considered farming the activity that was best suited to his disposition. It certainly gave him the greatest pleasure. He said it was more rewarding than any string of military victories could ever be. Um, and I've also, you see in his life as a farmer, someone who's deeply connected to the natural world around him, someone of enormous intellectual curiosity, and also someone who was determined to be connected with um, a transnational community of, of enlightened agricultural leaders um, um, and, and, and landowners on both sides of, of the Atlantic. But farming was never just a private enterprise for Washington. Um, he thought agriculture would be um, one of the most important foundation for the commercial prosperity of the new nation. It would be a source of its respectability among a community of, of nations. And he expected the, the type of farming that he demonstrated at Mount Vernon to secure that commercial prosperity for the, for the, um, for the new nation. At every stage in his innovations in agriculture over 40 years, he's, he's paying attention to a much broader economic um, uh, vision than just what he's trying to um, do at his own private estate. First, that's evident in his transition <clears throat> away from tobacco, which he abandons in 1765 and transition to, to wheat, a crop that could be marketed outside the restrictions of empire that had limited the tobacco trade by the time he became a full-time planter. And then again, following independence, when he introduces a, a very elaborate system of diversified farming um, 
that he thought would unite much of the nation in a, in a common commercial enterprise. And so he saw his farming as, as one more manifestation of his leadership in trying to establish um, uh, um, a, a lasting foundation for the United States. Um, in, his own um, in his own lifetime, um, farming was also an important component of, of the celebration of a heroic Washington. And, and the most important expression of, of uh, that image of the farmer as hero is, is in Richmond, in, in the standing um, statue of, of Washington that was commissioned of the French sculptor Houdon uh, by the Virginia State Assembly to um, be in the center of, of the state capital. When Washington returned um, to his life as a farmer following um, uh, his service in the Continental Army, he was hailed in the United States and in Europe as, as um, the American Cincinnatus regularly compared to the Roman um, a leader who had um, left the farm to defend the Republic in battle. And then when offered arbitrary uh, power, um, rejected that offer and returned to his life as a farmer. And the, the image of Cincinnatus at the plow in the, in the 18th century, it, it, it serves as, as a sort of paragon of, of civic virtue. And, and the presentation of, of Washington at the plow was a demonstration of, of his own virtue made all the more uh, powerful by the fact that he actually was returning to um, a, a life of farming. Um, Houdon presents um, um, Washington with uh, the plow at, at his, uh, the mold board is there at the feet. And then alongside him it, um, it is the plow. Um, and Houdon, in Houdon's representation, um, um, after consulting with Franklin and Jefferson and also getting some input from Washington, he decided to present Washington in modern dress rather than ancient dress associated with Cincinnatus usually. And he's presented not with the plow normally associated with Cincinnatus, but rather with a drill plow, something um, Washington had designed his own drill plow. It was manufactured by the enslaved carpenters and um, blacksmiths at Mount Vernon. And here it is, um, um, presented in, in this sculpture. Um, the plow also appears in representations of Washington when he um, resigns from the presidency. Um, in this image, which was created for a dinner um, to celebrate his resignation in, in March of 1797, Washington is surrendering the symbols of, of military and civic authority on the throne of liberty. But with his left arm, he gestures back to Mount Vernon and waiting for him at Mount Vernon is, is the plow. Um, so these images, um, as these images suggest, Washington after 1783 is effectively farming on a public stage and, and the veneration of, of Washington at the plow, this idea of, of the farmer doing the public good, serving the public good, really set a, a framework work that, that shaped the expectations um, for what Washington would um, accomplish as a farmer um, and, and also those are the expectations of an audience that closely followed his farming, an audience that extended to Europe as well as the United States. And those expectations of, 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 the, um, of the public good that Washington would serve also framed um, his eventual reckoning with slavery, a new reckoning with slavery in the years following the Revolutionary War. Um, and, and it's in his life as, as a farmer more clearly than in any other dimension of, of um, his life, that we can trace Washington's changing attitude towards slavery and his ultimate um, 
and we ultimately confronted the paradox of, of slavery and freedom that runs throughout um, the founding era. Um, the story of Washington the farmer is the story of Washington um, uh, the enslaver. Uh, farming and, and slave labor were inseparable for all of Washington's life as a farmer. Um, and, um, and he was closely involved with the management of enslaved labor um, throughout the time that he um, was directing um, agricultural work at um, Mount Vernon. I show this document here. It's from uh, late in his life. It's a document that only recently came to public light about 10 years ago when it was acquired by Mount Vernon. And it's um, where Washington, um, and you can find this on Mount Vernon's um, website in their digital archive. Um, it's where Washington offers um, a detailed description of the work and abilities of various enslaved laborers on um, one of his farms. Um, it gives you a sense of just how closely attentive he was, how closely he supervised um, enslaved labor. Um, and also gives you a sense that, that he defines the lives of the enslaved here almost entirely through their work and through their value, value to, um, to him. Um, but this is just one um, piece of evidence that, that the, the most um, detailed record of his involvement with the institution of slavery and his daily interaction with individual enslaved laborers, and especially his changing attitude towards slavery, is in his records um, as a farmer. And over those 40 years, when he again and again um, is at the forefront of efforts to adapt enslaved labor to, to new types of farming. Um, when, I, when I, I started the research for this book, I, I thought I had a pretty good sense of the trajectory of Washington's life as a farmer. Um, but what I now think are two of the most important contributions of the book came um, in many ways as, as surprises. And um, the, the first surprise was that just the depth of Washington's enduring commitment to um, model, British models of um, agricultural improvement. Uh, in, in the middle decades of the 18th century, um, there was a transformation in British agriculture that had brought about a remarkable increase in the productivity of the land. And from the very um, beginning of Washington's full-time management of, of Mount Vernon, starting in 1759, he's determined to bring the lessons of that um, new kind of farming from Great Britain to bear on his own um, estate in Virginia. Um, and he learns about it um, and learns the techniques of this kind of farming almost entirely through uh, books. And um, in the spring of 1759, he writes to his um, tobacco merchant in London and be, uh, orders um, a whole new set of British agricultural treatises, practical treatises, books that had absolutely nothing to do with tobacco or corn or the crops that normally were grown in Virginia, but rather would introduce Washington both to the techniques of, of farming in Great Britain and also the, um, the culture of experiment and innovation that he adapted. One of, one of the first and most important books he gets is that pictured here, Thomas Hale's Complete Body of Husbandry. Um, I, I could trace in here um, uh, lessons that he had learned about how to guide experiments and um, uh, uh, soil amendments that he used that he implements just within a few months of receiving um, this book. Um, but I also put in this frontispiece because um, this, these books not only offered practical advice that Washington took, they also introduced Washington to a, a different kind of culture of farming. Um, the, the British um, um, advocates of what is often called the new husbandry 
um, often compared their efforts to the great agricultural um, uh, writers of, of antiquity, often compared what they were doing to those of uh, the farmers of Rome and people like Ro um, Vir uh, Virgil and, and Livy. Um, and Washington um, also learns through the, these books about a, a culture of self-professed um, gentlemen farmers who were deeply involved in farming, um, who were, had a practical knowledge of farming, and it was farming that not only enhanced um, uh, the value of, of their land and estates, but also um, was presented as a kind of civic, even patriotic um, a duty um, that they could afford the risks and ex of experiment that common farmers could not. And this was a model um, that Washington readily attached himself to, and it guided him through the rest of his life as a farmer. It was a model that he thought would give a whole new purpose and value um, to the kind of um, landed estate over which he presided in, in Virginia. Um, and again, um, one of the other books that he orders early is this Practical Treatise of Husbandry by Duhamel, where he, this, this is the book that really guides him in the introduction of wheat as his principal cash crop. Most of Washington's agricultural library is now housed in the Boston Athenaeum, but this volume, um, which is one of the very few in which um, he's written notes in the margin. This volume um, is in the collection of the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and um, I was able to, um, to examine this on a, a visit a few years ago. Um, soon after the, um, the, the Revolutionary War, Washington announced um, that he would um, wanted to introduce a whole, um, what he called the complete course of English farming. Um, and it was not just cultivation methods and um, types of experiments that he had introduced before the Revolutionary War, but this was a comprehensive system that involved very complicated crop rotations extending over seven years, integrated with livestock management, and very much focused on stewardship of the land, the restoration of, of um, soil fertility. And, and the adoption of this um, uh, course of, of English husbandry led him to completely redesign uh, the agricultural landscape at, at Mount Vernon um, and, and to demand that the enslaved undertake the enormous work of creating um, new kinds of fields for these crop rotations and also um, uh, to work on the construction of um, tremendous barns based on sophisticated um, British models. And um, Washington then hired an experienced English farmer who um, uh, went to Mount Vernon uh, to live and to advise him. Um, and he also began a, a correspondence with some of the most influential British agricultural leaders of the time. And, um, uh, and they became his most important confidants in the um, last 15 years of his life. Um, and it was with them that he shared his growing disdain for um, what he, he thought was the destructive farming practices of, of, of most Americans. Um, the second surprise um, and closely related was the enormous effort that Washington expended after um, 1785 to adapt um, enslaved labor to this complicated British um, course of, of farming, a system of farming that nowhere else was um, would be so closely associated with um, enslaved uh, labor. During the Revolutionary War, Washington, on a couple of occasions in correspondence with his farm manager, expresses a wish to be done with managing enslaved labor. Um, 
And th those remarks combined with his uh, few remarks um, endorsing the principle of gradual abolition after 1783 um, have led a lot of historians to assume that, that Washington was trying to withdraw from um, his direct management and reliance on enslaved labor, that he anticipated that slavery would somehow fade away as, as the main source of agricultural labor. And when I looked at his um, implementation of this um, English course of husbandry, I found that that was not true at all. That Washington makes a number of decisive um, um, uh, efforts um, to rely more exclusively on enslaved labor after 1785. Um, he places enslaved overseers in charge of four of the five um, farms at Mount Vernon. They're involved in commercial agriculture. He tries to replace the hired white artisans that he had relied on uh, and, and paid for their um, skill and crafts. He tries to replace them with enslaved laborers, especially carpenters um, uh, who would make many of the agricultural implements that he introduced and, and the bricklayers who would build the, um, the um, tremendous barns at, at, at Mount Vernon. Most of the enslaved laborers, of course, were working in the fields, and there Washington introduces a much uh, greater specialization of labor, specialization by gender. Women um, in the fields assume much more responsibility for that work and for much of the enormous um, number of plowings and uh, harrowing that, that is introduced as part of the English system, while the men were disproportionately um, uh, put to work in artisan trades. Um, Washington recognizes almost immediately that what he's trying to do with the um, merger of English agricultural practices with um, um, reliance on enslaved labor is, is unprecedented, and that he will find no guidance for that in any of the many um, uh, books that he relies on for other kinds of, of agricultural advice. And he institutes um, a, a new system of supervision that's really entirely original to him. And this is an example of one of the, the weekly um, reports of work that he um, gathered from the overseers um, at each of the um, plantations of the five or six plantations at, at Mount Vernon. And um, these, um, these weekly reports accounted for um, uh, the six days of work of every single enslaved laborer on the estate. Um, they're incredibly detailed. There were uh, an uh, incredible resource for me, but it also um, shows a new level of supervision um, and control of labor um, that he institutes as part of, of this more complicated system of farming. He presents these in the form of double entry bookkeeping, even though they have nothing to do with any monies that are exchanged um, or any values of what's being produced. Um, each plantation is debited for the number of people who are uh, enslaved people who are, are working there and then credited for the individual days of labor that um, so that he could supervise labor more closely, not just at Mount Vernon, but when he was away. And he relies on these reports um, throughout his service as president. Um, when he's in Philadelphia, he devotes most Sundays to going over the weekly reports and then writing very detailed instructions back to his farm manager. Um, these, these reports are, are um, typical of the kind of detailed records that Washington kept. Washington had a pension for all kinds of record keeping, um, record keeping that probably makes Mount Vernon the most thoroughly documented um, agricultural estate in the Chesapeake in the 18th century. And I just showed two examples here of, of just the kind of exactitude 
and precision that Washington um, brought to farming, in which he insisted from the people who worked for him. This is a design for a, 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 a treading barn that he uh, would build at one of the farms at Mount Vernon. This is uh, from the collection of the Library of Congress. Um, and it's his own original design. And, and in the space below, he, he gives the exact measurements that he wants the timbers um, uh, to be. He, want, he ex, uh, differentiates between those that should be gathered and cut and dressed from uh, the estate and those that should be bought in Alexandria. But what's really interesting is that he produces this document um, at one of the busiest times of his presidency. He sends it to his farm manager a week before his reelection in 1792. Um, earlier in the 1780s, he had put together this chart of, um, uh, again, the kind of uh, precision, mathematical precision that he brings to farming. This is his determination of exactly how many seeds of very eight kinds of crops are in a pound, in a bushel, how many are required to sow um, uh, uh, the fields. Um, and this, this kind of detail is, is evident um, in other kinds of records like um, the, the provisioning of, of, of food and clothing to the enslaved laborers. And it's really what um, um, makes it possible to um, uh, recreate as uh, much as I have been able to do here uh, uh, about the work and, and the lives of, of um, the enslaved labor. Um, that, that record, of course, is always imperfect because it is created by Washington and his white farm managers and that the enslaved played very little role. As far as we know, none of the enslaved overseers um, were able to write their own, uh, had the skills to write their own reports, but they are, um, were involved in delivering the reports um, weekly to the, to the farm manager. Um, this, this almost obsessive uh, attention to detail and control um, never obscures um, uh, a, a much grander aspirational vision of, of a system of agriculture that Washington thought would connect the new nation to a, a world of in, enlightened improvement and natural uh, investigation. Um, this is um, the, the seal of uh, the uh, Society for, the, um, for Improving, um, Philadelphia Society for Improving Agriculture, which was established in 1785. It's one of a new generation of agricultural improvement societies, most of which um, inducted Washington as a member uh, soon after their founding. Uh, the Philadelphia Society was probably Washington's most important connection with other agricultural innovators in the United States. Um, and um, like Washington, the, the Philadelphia Society, um, they had a vision of the new nation, as you can see, that they see this idea of this labor um, watched over by a, a figure that brings together both Columbia and the, and the goddess of, of agriculture series. Um, but like Washington, this society and many of the others in, um, that are formed in the United States in the 1780s is focused on trying to bring um, the best of British agricultural practices and methods to the United States. Um, in, in the closing days of, of the Revolutionary War, um, Washington frequently made reference to um, his anticipated life under vine and fig tree, citing the, the biblical um, scripture that also talks about turning swords and, um, uh, into plowshares and talking about nations that would learn war no more. And 
Washington, like many of his British correspondents, um, like his former French colleagues who he stays, uh, comrades in the military, he stays in touch with in the 1780s, and like members of the Philadelphia Agricultural Improvement Society, um, he was convinced that, that a focus on agricultural improvement and a shared project across national boundaries would establish a, a new era of peace. Um, uh, these advocates of improvement um, um, th thought that um, a pursuit of, of agricultural improvement would, would um, replace the mercantilist restrictions on trade that they thought had only um, uh, led to, to war and the costs of empire. And instead, they saw in, in the free exchange of agricultural knowledge um, um, that, that the ability of nations to develop um, their most um, um, uh, reciprocal advantages that would then serve um, the interests of free trade. And Washington became, for these improvement advocates, the, the preeminent example of someone um, who was turning to agricultural improvement um, to uh, support this um, anticipated new order of, of peace among nations. Um, when and the great English agricultural leader, um, Arthur Young, learns that Washington is interested in British husbandry, he writes that um, he's glad to learn that the general is now um, a, a farmer. And he saw in Washington's interest in, in agricultural improvement and British agricultural improvement, uh, the beginnings of, an, of a new um, productive and collaborative relationship between um, the United States and, and Great Britain. Young offered Washington any kind of support he could um, provide, and he sends Washington seeds and uh, new kinds of plows and, um, and then probably most important, um, uh, the agricultural journal that he publishes, the Annals of Agriculture, which becomes one of Washington's main guides in, in implementing this new system of, of, of farming. Um, Sir John Sinclair, the um, uh, founding president of the Board of Agriculture in Great Britain, also initiated a correspondence with, um, with Washington. He becomes, I think, the most important agricultural correspondent in the 1790s for Washington. Um, and they talk about not just practical um, advice, but also he talks about um, uh, the political economy of farming. And he writes that Washington, who was um, the individual who was the immediate cause of of um, the breakup of the empire had, had become through his agricultural improvements, um, the, uh, the most important source of the good understanding that emerges between Great Britain and the United States by the end of the 1790s. Young and, and, um, um, and Sinclair are, are part of a, a almost global network of improvement advocates who eagerly supported Washington in his, um, in his innovations at Mount Vernon. This image might not um, seem like the signal of the beginning of a global exchange of enlightened knowledge, but in fact, this image represents Washington's first great improvement project following the Revolutionary War, when he decides that he wants to begin the breeding of mules, um, uh, which had only um, occasionally been done in the United States and never very successfully. And he wants to breed mules because he's he's learned that they are superior draft animals in terms of longevity and the cost of keeping them. Um, and in he search in his search for a Spanish jackass, which were considered the most um, uh, um, advantageous um, uh, donkeys or jackasses to use for the breeding of mules. Um, 
his search for, for that um, reveals the enormous enthusiasm and support that he would find for his improvement efforts, both in Europe and in, in the United States. Diplomats in Europe circulated his um, request for a Spanish jackass, a, an animal that normally was prohibited from export from Spain. And when um, King Charles III of Spain learns of Washington's interest, he orders that two of the best specimens that can be found would be sent to Washington as a gift. Only one of those animals survived the journey that um, Washington named that animal Royal Gift, who is here um, represented in um, uh, Farmer's Almanac that was published in Massachusetts soon after um, uh, the animal had arrived um, in the United States. And as, as Royal Gift travels from Massachusetts where he had landed to Mount Vernon, he becomes a kind of celebrity covered in um, newspaper reports, uh, prominent farmers ranging from John Jay in New York to leading political elite in South Carolina, write to Washington and, and want to, um, to bring their mares to breed with, with royal gift. Um, and this is, I said, this is the first of, of the many projects that, that um, gain attention of people um, really all over the Atlantic world. And over the next 15 years, Washington would be the beneficiary of, of, of this um, network of, of scientific and agricultural exchange that extended especially through um, the remaining parts of the British Empire, but also through um, of the reach of, of American diplomats. Washington receives wheat from Cape Colony of Southern Africa, the Barbary Coast. Um, he receives cotton from China. He gets breeding stock from both Europe and the West Indies. And then most importantly, he gets an enormous um, number of agricultural books, most of which come from um, England and Scotland. Um, as a result of, of these kinds of exchanges, Washington turns his entire estate in, into a display of his um, innovation. And he, he offered them the many visitors who pilgrimage to Mount Vernon um, a view of, of an agricultural landscape that was unlike anything else that could be seen in the United States. Um, a visitor from Poland said that he couldn't believe Washington had never been to Europe since he had so thoroughly and effectively incorporated European ideals of, um, of landscape design. A British visitor said he was reminded of, of the work of Capability Brown, the, the favored landscape designer of the great improved estates of, of, um, of England. Um, Washington, uh, and, and not just at his mansion house where he would display experimental uh, crops, but throughout the farms here in a close-up of, of his redesign of, of Union Farm, you can see how he creates these um, vistas uh, along this tree-lined avenue that went, went into the great barn that was built according to the design of, of Arthur Young. Um, throughout the uh, state, over the 8,000 acres of, of the state at Mount Vernon, Washington creates views and vistas that would show off his agricultural improvements. Um, he was particularly obsessed with establishing um, English-style hedgerows to divide the fields at Mount Vernon, even um, instructing his managers that, um, that he wanted labor diverted from profit-making enterprises. Um, if that was necessary to establish these, um, these hedgerows. And he explained to the, the farm manager that um, the hedges were meant to be ornamental to the farm and reputable to the farmer. And, and that mix of aesthetic design and, and a reputation as, as an accomplished and knowledgeable um, um, manager of, of an agricultural estate um, runs throughout Washington's presentation of, of his agricultural improvements.
Um, here in one um, uh, vision, a, a view of, of Mount Vernon that was painted by Edward Savage in the late 1780s or early 1790s. Um, uh, so at the time when many of these people are coming to Mount Vernon, um, this is one of the few contemporaneous views that includes um, uh, housing uh, that was provided for the enslaved laborers. To the right of the picture is the so-called house for families that um, uh, was raised soon after there. Um, but but the visitors who, um, who who came and saw the agricultural improvements and, and toured with Washington on his daily round of of the um, of the multiple farms, they also of course um, observed the work of the enslaved laborers who had, had made possible Washington's agricultural improvements, had made possible these massive construction projects and. Just as, as agriculturalists on, on both sides of the Atlantic had um, seen the symbolic importance of the general turned farmer, so a, a new generation of, of um, anti-slavery advocates um, were convinced that um, Washington's support for their cause and Washington's emancipation of the enslaved people that he controlled would um, immeasurably contribute to their efforts to um, abolish slavery in, in the United States. And Washington becomes, at the same time that he's introducing these um, new forms of agriculture and new forms of controlling and supervising enslaved labor, he becomes um, the most important among the founders of the, of the objects of these abolitionist appeals, um, that people see Washington as, as the key convert in, into their cause. Um, the earliest documented appeal to Washington um, uh, was from Lafayette, who um, invited Washington to join him in, a, in an experiment that would educate um, uh, enslaved laborers to be free and self-sufficient tenants. Um, Washington also received personal appeals from um, religious leaders, such as the Methodist clergy who wanted him to um, um, uh, uh, support a petition to um, uh, the Virginia Assembly for gradual abolition, or the Quaker leaders who came to him in New York um, in, in looking for support of the petitions they had submitted to Congress. Um, the French abolitionist um, Jacques-Pierre Brousseau uh, visits um, Mount Vernon, and he makes a, a very personal appeal to Washington to be the leader of a new abolitionist society. And like many of these abolitionists, he calls he, he recalls the, the language of liberty that um, associated with the principles of the American Revolution. And he says that it would be most appropriate if, if what the man he calls the savior of America also became um, the liberator of the hundreds of thousands of enslaved blacks who remained in bondage in, in the United States. Um, these appeals, um, many of which were far more critical, those that were in the press, um, would continue through the rest of, of, of Washington's um, life. Um, apart from a, a very few private comments that um, uh, Washington made in, in support of the principle of gradual abolition, um, the only change that can be identified in Washington in his attitude towards slavery is evident in his management of agricultural labor and his plans as a farmer. And in the years after he had first heard these abolitionist appeals, um, he, he introduces a, a, a number of changes in the management of labor that he thinks um, will um, ameliorate or, or um, at least provide some shield against what he perceives to be the most 
brutal and inhumane aspects of slavery. He resolves to end the purchase or sale of enslaved laborers. He um, resolves to keep families together, um, at least within the confines of his larger estate. Um, he insisted that his managers provide enslaved families with adequate provisions, food and clothing and medicine. And, um, and he discourages the use of violence um, in the coercion of labor or the punishment of, of enslaved uh, people who did not provide the labor that was demanded of them. Um, but in return for what he sees as these um, minimal protections of, of um, the well-being of the enslaved, Washington renews his demands for their labor. And he says that he expects in return um, all of the labor that they can produce um, given their age and uh, constitution and all of the labor that they and that they would be working from sunup to sundown. And he defines this work as their duty. He uses that word um, uh, repeatedly to explain the sort of transactional um, relationship that he thinks he's establishing with um, the enslaved. Um, in many ways, Washington deliberately creates silences about slavery um, when he um, and was very reluctant to put things in writing about um, his comments about the institution of slavery. Um, and he had famously written that, that he um, didn't like to um, uh, think about, let alone talk about um, uh, slavery. To Lafayette, when Lafayette approaches him about the experiment to um, uh, prepare the enslaved for freedom, Washington writes back and gives a very brief statement of support, but says this will have to wait until to talk about till we meet. And that becomes the standard pattern for Washington. We're left with just minimal hints of the conversations that might have followed. But again, he did leave a remarkably detailed um, um, and meticulous record of his supervision of labor. Um, and it's that record of farming that reveals um, Washington's gradual recognition of the incompatibility of slavery with his particular vision of, of agricultural improvement. Um, this becomes evident, particularly during the years of Washington's first term as president. Um, he had repeatedly hired British farm managers or um, artisans because um, uh, he wanted to draw on their knowledge and experience um, that they could bring to the farms. And then again and again, he's disappointed with them, dismisses them, um, explicitly stating that he's dismissing them because of their inability to supervise enslaved labor in the way that he um, was exercising, the way he expected. Um, and, and that, um, there's, there's a sense that somehow there's a disconnect between um, the management of enslaved labor and, and that knowledge and experience that the British farmers and artisans brought, brought to Mount, Mount Vernon. On another level, in his travels as president, um, where he visits every state in the Union, um, and um, also in a remarkable survey of agriculture that he prepares um, for Arthur Young, um, Washington comes to a new understanding of the ways in which a reliance on slavery um, differentiates the states of Maryland and, and Virginia from the other states in the North, which were also um, involved in a similar kind of grain um, uh, cultivation. Um, and it was um, particularly um, the example of Pennsylvania, where Washington lived. Um, from um, the seven years of nearly seven years of his term as presidency, um, and where he closely observed uh, farming in the surrounding area, um, and in in Pennsylvania, he 
finally acknowledges that, that Pennsylvania is superior to Virginia in its um, agricultural improvements, not because the soil's better or because the climate's easier or has access to um, um, better transportation. He thinks Virginia has the advantage in all of those. But he ultimately concludes <clears throat> um, that it's proven in um, Pennsylvania is superior because Pennsylvania has um, enacted the gradual abolition of slavery and Virginia has not. And he, and he um, tells Sir John Sinclair, tellingly, he says this only, writes this only to a British correspondent, but he tells Sinclair um, that Virginia must do the same um, or it will fall behind and it will lose the edge to states like, like Pennsylvania. Um, by the time he writes that in 1796, um, Washington has no hopes that the Virginia Assembly will um, enact any kind of program of gradual abolition. Um, and instead, he, he um, turns to his own plan um, to find some way to free the enslaved people that he um, controls at Mount Vernon. And in fact, this, this map of Mount Vernon, the survey that he uh, draws in 1793, was um, not meant to memorialize his achievements in introducing this new kind of agriculture, but actually it was the first step in a plan to lease his farms. Um, this is pr presented as a presentation to explain to British farmers that he wants to uh, lease his farms to British farmers who um, who would pay him for, to, um, to, to lease the land and that um, that income would allow him to, on some level, some way never fully explained, um, to free the enslaved people that he controlled while those um, uh, tenants uh, would take over and continue his agricultural improvements. Um, the book contains what I think is the, the first full accounting of this plan, a very elaborate plan, um, even though Washington never um, explicitly explains every detail of it in any one place. He's constructing it over several years, and, and the book goes through that, that plan and his efforts to attract a British tenant. He's never successful in doing that. Um, he privately says he'll never rent to um, lease the land to the what he calls the slovenly farmers of, of the United States. And so when the, the plan came to nothing, um, Washington decides to hire out as many of the enslaved as he can. This is by 1799. Um, and um, find other ways to um, employ the remaining enslaved laborers at Mount Vernon and also begins plans to settle some of, of the enslaved laborers on his um, lands to the west. And it would only be in his death that he um, would provide for, for the freedom that he had been searching some way to uh, um, uh, uh, reach since the, um, 1793. And in the summer of 1799, um, five months before his unexpected death, um, Washington um, drafted the will that would um, provide for the freedom of over 120 enslaved individuals at, um, that he controlled at Mount Vernon. And he ensured that once freed, the aged and the infirmed would be cared for for the remainder of his life. He provided that the, the young would be taught a trade or skills to um, support themselves. Um, but in that will and in that um, provision for emancipation, Washington never offers any kind of principled words of opposition. Um, uh, to the institution of slavery or, or, or um, condemning slavery. And he never explains what it is that he hoped um, would come about because of, of his own act of emancipation. Um, what is pretty clear is though that he um, did not expect other Virginians uh, planters to follow his lead. 
Um, and indeed they didn't. And um, it has um, in some ways very little effect on other planters. There are, um, there's no case of someone who um, uh, uh, decides to emancipate the enslaved under their control because of Washington's example. Um, several years um, after he resumed his life as a full-time farmer um, after the Revolutionary War, Washington had, had wrote a friend that, that he considered the life of a husband and the, the most delectable life of all. And, and he goes on to write to, to the friend that to see plants rise from the earth and, and flourish by the superior skill and bounty of the labor fills a contemplative mind with ideas which are, are more easy to be conceived than expressed. It's a kind of poetic expression we don't normally um, associate with, with Washington but one that really is at the heart of what he was trying to accomplish through this adoption of, of British agricultural methods. Um, visitors um, to Mount Vernon came into the most public room in the, at the mansion house, into the new room, would see this, the frieze that surrounds the room and in the uh, similar stucco designs on the ceiling, which Washington had designed in partnership with a, a stucco master who'd come to uh, Mount Vernon um, and, and these um, designs that Washington chose um, really um, were representative of, the, of that ideal of, of the natural bounty of, of the rural landscape and, and of a dignity of, of labor that had attracted him to um, British models of farming as a young planter and which continued to um, guide him in his dramatic reorganization of, of Mount Vernon following the Revolutionary War. Um, and his engagement with that um, transnational community of, of enlightened agricultural leaders and naturalists um, deepened his conviction that, that the kind of farming that he was demonstrating at Mount Vernon um, would support a, a new kind of commercial prosperity for the new nation uh, that could be engaged in peaceful commerce. He was convinced that um, his ideas about the stewardship of the land would also um, um, uh, ensure the political stability of an agricultural society. Um, and those visitors also saw he chose um, for the, the crowning um, uh, uh, ornament of his mansion house, he chose for the weather vane this and helped design this weather vane of, of the Dove of Peace. Um, and, and it was this Dove of Peace that was representative of the life of um, under vine and fig tree that he had talked about so much um, and, and the associated scriptural reference to um, uh, the promise of a world in which people would um, uh, learn about war no more. Um, but that ideal of, of rural life and agricultural bounty proved always to be in conflict with a system of labor that rested on violence and on um, um, a denial of individual liberty. Um, and in this book, I, um, I have tried to recover a, a neglected and what I think is an essential dimension of Washington's life. Um, and I also hope that it has shown that um, his pursuit of a particular model of agricultural improvement ultimately and um, uniquely convinced him um, that there was no place in, um, for slavery in an enlightened and prosperous republic. So, so thank you, and your time for questions now, I'd be happy to take any. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, and uh, please, uh, our viewers who are on YouTube and, and Facebook, uh, please send your questions in and we'll, uh, we'll relay them to Bruce. Uh, 
one one thing I I think might be helpful, uh, Bruce, for our viewers. Uh, you alluded to the the size of the uh, state uh, of eight thousand acres, but um, give us give us a bit more sense of the the, the scope of this operation and its complexity. Um, you know, there this was quite a large uh, operation, and for him to uh, deploy these new uh, agricultural techniques must have been quite quite a feat in uh, in coordination. Um, an enormous um, uh, feat of, of um, coordination. Um, of, um, by the time Washington is instituting these changes after 1785, um, Mount Vernon extends to almost 8,000 acres. Um, he has by then made the final uh, purchases, uh, or in 1786, he makes the final purchases that he incorporates in Mount Vernon. And of those 8,000 acres, about 3,500 acres is um, uh, in arable land or cultivated land. And that, that's tremendous size. Um, uh, the individual farms range from 5,000 to uh, 500 to about 1,500 acres. Um, and just as a comparison, the kind of tremendous um, English estates that he read about and studied about, they were usually divided into farms that were no bigger than 500 acres and, and managed by um, uh, by one farmer uh, in, 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 in that sense. Um, so it's a very, very large operation. Um, by 1780, when he starts this new system of farming, he conducts his first complete census of enslaved um, people at Mount Vernon. And in February of 1786, he enumerates uh, 216 enslaved individuals of all ages. Uh, that number increases by 100 by the time he um, conducts the last census in, uh, of the enslaved in 1799. Um, and so part of their coordination in, and, and in the late 1780s and early 1790s is figuring out the allocation of those laborers. So a lot of, of those individuals are moved from one place to another in order to have the kind of, of labor force that he needs for a, a very complicated system of farming. There also needed to be a, a kind of self-direction in that farming. Um, that um, um, There's some hints of this, but um, also if you just look at the logistics, it, um, it could not have functioned if uh, the enslaved were not taking some direction and control, not just the enslaved overseers, um, but the people who were involved in the um, separated tasks. Because even on a farm with um, 15 or 20 laborers, on any given day, there were um, eight or nine different um, discrete tasks being carried out um, by the enslaved. In some of the documents that you showed in your presentation, uh, demonstrate that he, he like Jefferson, uh, was an avid uh, record keeper, very meticulous in that respect. Uh, one of our viewers, uh, Carol, asks whether uh, Alexander Hamilton might have had any influence on the business side of uh, Washington's record keeping. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, he really is modeling this on agricultural um, examples and models. He is following what he reads about in British um, uh, treatises. What I find particularly interesting is that aside, uh, before he's involved with the Philadelphia Society, there's not much um, communication with other farmers in the United States. Um, that, that changes a little bit after, after the Revolutionary War. Um, but, but the direction is more toward Great Britain in learning um, those uh, kinds of management. Or earlier in Washington's life, <clears throat> it's looking to other Virginia states. 
I think he learned an enormous amount in his role as the executor for the Custis estate, one of the largest and wealthiest um, estates in Virginia. And Washington poured over those kinds of records. Um, he ends up managing quite differently from the Custis um, family had. Um, but that's where he learns how to coordinate these kinds of records within um, uh, for, for his own estate. Another viewer, uh, Jacqueline, asks, how did others view Washington's favorable opinion on English agricultural practices? So uh, here's Washington embracing uh, practices for agriculture from uh, a former foe. How, how did uh, his contemporaries view that? It's a very good question. Um, and um, what's interesting is the kind of agricultural improvement advocates that Washington was associated with, whether they were in Philadelphia or in New York or, or South Carolina, shared that admiration for British agriculture. And, and just for some context, it's not just Americans. This is not just a kind of legacy of a colonial provincialism. Um, British agriculture was held as, as the ideal to which most um, Europeans on the continent aspired. Um, when Frederick of um, the Great of Prussia, one of the other great national leaders who turns later in his life to agricultural improvement, when he undertakes um, uh, agricultural experiments, he brings, like Washington, he brings um, a consultant far, consulting farmer from uh, Great Britain. Um, and then it's only later um, that this model fades away in, in um, favor, is less favorable in part because it is so expensive that it can only be undertaken by very um, wealthy landowners. And um, in the years after Washington's death, very quickly, uh, agricultural improvement in the United States becomes much more localized, uh, much more democratically based, um, and less beholden to those um, to those British models. Well, somewhat related question: Did uh, did King George's reputation or accomplishments as a farmer have any influence on Washington? That's something I have spent a lot of time <laughs> trying to investigate, something I'm very interested in. I spent two months as um, um, Vernon's inaugural fellow with the Georgian Papers Program at the Royal Archives at Windsor going through Washington, or it slipped there, uh, George III's Agricultural Improvements. There's no direct um, communication. What is clear is they knew about the work of the other. Arthur Young informs Washington of what George III is doing. Um, and what I find even more interesting is that they rely on the exact same books um, and they're trying to do the exact same things. Um, they also rely on the advice of people like, both rely on the advice of Arthur Young and Sir John Sinclair. Um, but it's that common um, connection with books um, that really unites those, the improvements of both Washington and George III. And also both of them are not just trying to improve the works of their own estate. They're trying to provide a model and an example for their respective nations. Well, this has uh, been a fascinating discussion uh, showing another side of uh, Washington I think most people are not familiar with. So thank you very much, Bruce. Uh, what are you working on now or what's next? Uh, <laughs> Actually, um, I had found so much material on George III that I couldn't include in the book on Washington that I, I'm now going to do a, a very different book about um, the, the other farmer George and talk about both the public image of George III, um, uh, which was often very satirical and critical with um, his very substantive achievements as an agricultural improver at Windsor. So now that I'm living in the UK, I, I'm going to go ahead with, with that project. 
but we'll all look forward to that. Uh, so for folks who would like to purchase uh, signed copies of Bruce's book, Washington at the Plow, uh, you can uh, log into the VMHC website uh, and go to our museum store and order copies. Uh, and again, thank you, Bruce Ragsdale, for a fascinating talk today. And uh, I hope that everybody will be able to join us in person in January for Mary DeCritico's uh, talk for the Banner Lecture Series. So thank you very much. Good afternoon and happy holidays. <laughs>